is Emily Escorcia. I'm your host, and you guys are tuned in to Talk About It. Hey everyone, today we're going to sit down and talk to Miss Melba Pearson. If you don't already know who she is, she is a civil rights and criminal law attorney who works in the Center for Administration of Justice at Florida International University. She serves as the center's policy director, overseeing technical assistance, training, and community engagement efforts. You may also recognize her from your ballot as state attorney. She is a loud activist who has challenged a 27-year incumbent. As a lawyer who had no interest in politics before, she discusses what drove her to finally put her name on that ballot and why activism, especially for Black lives, is so important to her. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Good, good. How's your day treating you? Hectic, but you know, party <laughs> don't stop. Gotta keep going. I feel you. I feel you. I just had, it's my finals week. Good luck. It's crazy, but we got to push on. Yes, we do. I remember those days. Yeah. I remember those days. Yeah. Sometimes fondly, but not always. So yeah. exactly. <laughs> Definitely. Some courses I'm like, yeah, this is amazing. I love learning this. And then some classes I'm like, can it be over sooner, please? Right. <laughs> I don't ever ask me what I learned studying. I know. But once I once I pass, it's gone. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Oh man. So Miss Melba Pearson, tell me a little bit about yourself for my audience. For those of you that don't already know. Awesome. So thank you for having me on. I'm looking forward to our discussion. So my name is Melba Pearson. Uh, I was a prosecutor here in Miami-Dade County for close to 16 years, where I handled everything from grand theft auto to double homicides and everything in between. I served as president of the National Black Prosecutors Association for two terms. I then left the state attorney's office to become the deputy director of the ACLU of Florida, where I worked on civil rights issues, criminal justice reform, immigration, especially as to how it impacted communities of color, as well as policing issues. I then left at the end of last year to run for Miami-Dade state attorney. Uh, unfortunately, you know, 2020 is that year, right? It's that year where a lot of hopes and dreams went kind of sideways. But uh, still at the end of the day, I uh, garnered about 155,000 votes, which is pretty crazy for a first time candidate without the, you know, quote unquote, name recognition and mine you know, included. Of immigrant. Huh? I said mine included. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Oh my gosh. That, that means a lot. Thank you. Um, yeah. So, you know, daughter of immigrants, first time candidate and, you know, took on an established incumbent who had been in office for close to 27 years and, you know, was able to do something, which was pretty cool. And now I am the director of policy and programs for the Center for the Administration of Justice, which is housed at Florida International University. And I'm working on data and prosecution and how using data can bring more transparency and accountability to the system and help rebuild community trust. So that's my focus right now. So that's me. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing. Thank you. And I know that that was a recent um, promotion. So congratulations on that position. And thank, thank, you. You for, thank you. Thank you for everything you do for our community. I voted very, very proudly for you because I, I do believe in 
a very strong voice that will kind of challenge the system. So what exactly in your life experience has brought you to who you are today, either professional or personal? My parents, without a doubt. Um, like I mentioned before, I'm the daughter of immigrants. My father came here from Jamaica and my mother came here from Trinidad. Um, they stopped a few places along the way. If anybody who's familiar with the Caribbean migration patterns, it's like the Caribbean to either Canada or England, and then you end up in Brooklyn. Right? <laughs> <laughs> my parents kind of followed that model. They actually met in Canada. But oh. you know, the fact of the matter is, they really had a strong worth work ethic as many immigrants do because they really placed a high value on education and you know as the path to the american dream um but they also at the same token were very um very passionate about me knowing my history uh knowing about african history and things that they weren't teaching us in school uh, understanding the role of black history and american history and being unapologetic for who i am and for my lineage and to also you know be a voice right so my dad is was a, is a huge admirer of dr king and you know spent a lot of time telling me about him and the civil rights movement and really educating me on that so is that that was the backdrop of my childhood. So when I became an attorney, my gut instinct as a result of how I was raised was to do community-based work. And that evolved into social justice work as, as time went on because attorneys are uniquely in a situation to be able to explain the laws to people, to educate people about their rights and to empower them to take action and to create change. So that's what I took on as a result of, of my upbringing and the lessons that my parents taught me from young. That's awesome. That's, I mean, I feel very lucky to have very inclusive parents as well that taught me a little bit about everyone's history, not just my own, where I feel like that's one area that we're lacking in a little bit of an, in our education. <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> just a little, just a little. So what do you think about the Miami community as a whole can be more inclusive? So first of all, I think we need to really embrace common language um, because a lot of people, when they say diversity, they're like, oh yeah, Miami's super diverse. And it is, but it kind of, isn't right. So having grown up in New York, you know, I grew up with what I believe is true diversity, which is, you know, you go to Manhattan and you're, they've got Chinatown, you've got little Korea, you've got a little Italy, you know, you have so many different cultures that are richly represented in the city. And in Miami, the culture is very, you know, uh, Latinx influenced, which is great, but we have to make sure that we're centering all Latinx voices in the equation, right? Uh, many times as we've seen, uh, I'm going to go political because why not? Go for like, it. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, you know, the one of the complaints about the Democratic Party was how they messaged to Spanish-speaking audiences and really treated them as a monolith, right? 
So it's hard to celebrate diversity if you're not acknowledging the diversity of the different types of people that are here. The same applies to the to the black community. You've got you know Caribbean immigrants that live here. You've got a, a massive uh, Jamaican community that that lives in Broward, but there's also an outpost in Kendall, right? Yeah. You have you know the Haitian community. You have African Americans. So again, you can't. In order to be inclusive, you have to speak to all of the different groups and don't just paint any one group with a single brush and assume that all of their issues are going to be the same. You know, giving a, a more pointed example when it comes to the Latinx community, there was a discussion about how when the Democratic Party was engaging Spanish speakers around the Biden campaign, uh, they brought out a bus that played music and brought it to a, a Cuban community. However, this was a bus that was more traditional of the Colombian community. So it's kind of insulting that like, okay, we're just playing loud, you know, Spanish music and all right, good check. We, yeah, we, half of them have never heard the song. That's not really their interest. At all. Yeah. And, then, and then it's like, oh, gee, I wonder why we lost this population. That would be why. So, you know, it's very important, not just from a political perspective, but just from a growth and building perspective to really embrace the diversity in this in this city and in this state and really celebrate each of the different cultures and pockets, again, rather than just overlooking, you know, masses of people. Of course. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And is that part of the reason why you decided to go into the political arena to begin with? I know you've always been very active in activism, but what made you decide to run for office? So that was never on my radar. Running for office was never on my list of things to do before I leave this earth. Right? It just, yeah. uh, I, I liked more of the thought process of being Olivia Pope and scandal, right? Where like, you knew where everybody was, you're able to help people as you can, you're able to use your voice, um, but not necessarily be in the quote unquote seat of power. But right. what ended up happening was that during my time at the ACLU, you know, really came to light the Darren Rainey case. Now, even though it had happened many years prior, it the, the closeout report that made it very clear that charges weren't going to be filed against the correctional officers that literally boiled a man to death, you know, that, that became a huge rallying cry in many circles. And people started to approach me saying, you know, you need to run for state attorney. And the old adage, or maybe it's not that old, but the adage is that women need to be asked like, you know, six times or so to run for office before they do it. And I, I think I solidly had like 20, right? Because <laughs> I was like, no, 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 no. And then as time went on, I started to really reflect on my experience at the state attorney's office. I knew where things could be improved. I saw the concerns now from a 30,000 foot view as the deputy director of the ACLU of Florida. So I was able to work on a number of issues that I was siloed from, for lack of a better term, when I was an assistant state attorney, because there's just a lot of things you don't know. You're just focused on your cases, but you're not involved in administration to know how certain policies get made or even right. The impact that you have, you know? So all of that together, you know, started to have me thinking like, okay, well, maybe I can have a really great impact, you know, in this role. And, you know, the final uh, 
the, you know, the final thing after hearing from everything, everyone from activist groups to survivors groups to, you know, returning citizens to law enforcement groups. I mean, it was a wide array of people that really were encouraging me to do this. I sat down with my father and I asked him, I'm like, listen, you know, you know, dad, what should I do? You know, like this is what's, you know, come about and all of this. And he just looked at me and he said, you have to sacrifice for the good of the people. And he's like, how long did it take for you to be in this position to be able to challenge a 27 year incumbent and potentially be the first African-American woman to hold this seat? If you don't do it, how much longer before the next person is going to be able to rise to position to do this? Absolutely. And so my husband was with me and he was like, oh, we run it. Okay. Like, <laughs> you know, it was a wrap at that point. So that's- Yeah, of course. Yeah. That's a call to action from dad. <laughs> right? Like, you can't say no to dad. It's like, Definitely right. not. Definitely not. And do you think you'll keep going? You'll try again? I don't know. I don't know. Um, this was a very tough election cycle. I think every election cycle is tough, of course, but right. it was so much harder because of the backdrop of, you know, George Floyd and all that was happening there. So there was a lot of personal pain as a woman of color. Um, There was that uphill battle of taking on a 27 year incumbent and trying to fundraise in the backdrop of a pandemic, you know, so there, and you know, there are a lot of folks who didn't get in line like they promised or, or were too afraid to speak out because of either personal interest or just fear. So, you know, I'm definitely a lot wiser having gone through the process and my analysis, if I'm going to do this again, would be very different than what it was this time around. Um, my goal at this point is just to, you know, do the best job that I can at FIU and really try to expand the use of data across the country as well as internationally to address some of these issues of racial and economic disparities. And then, you know, in maybe two years or so, take a look at the political landscape and see what makes sense. You know, we have a gubernatorial race coming up in 2022. We'd be halfway through the Biden-Harris administration. So, you know, there may be other opportunities there of of, of work that needs to be done that I can lend my voice to that's going to have a broader impact or maybe not, you know, I don't know. So I've decided I'm gonna give myself some time to rest, recover and really look at the landscape and see what makes sense and where I can have the most impact because that's the only reason to do this. Of course, of course. And so what can we expect from you moving forward, either in your position at FIU or personal activism with your concerns for your black community? Uh, Well, first of all, y'all not getting rid of me anytime soon. (laughs) You're going to be saying a whole lot of me, right? So (laughs) some of that will involve my work at at FIU. Um, I'm constantly looking for new partners, whether it be grassroots, grass tops, you know, to engage in issues around criminal justice reform, especially prosecutorial reform. Um, I'm going to be continuing to write up eds and to call folks out. Uh, I have my weekly show Mondays with Melba on Facebook Live, where I talk about a lot of these issues and in a way that I hope is accessible to folks. Um, I encourage everyone to tune in. Uh, again, you find me on Facebook Live. Melba Pearson is, is my, my name on, on, on Facebook. So just you know, go ahead and log on and uh, you know you can see uh, on my page some of my past Mondays with Melba. And you know drop questions in the chat and be like, tell us why, or we don't understand this, or could you cover 
cover this particular topic in a future Mondays with Melba, because for me, it's about educating and empowering and making sure people have the information to make wise decisions. You don't have to agree with me. And this is not about everybody come agree with Melba because she knows everything. No, but I'll do the research on an issue and present my point of view. I'll present links in the chat so that people can read up on their own and make decisions based on what your personal values are and how they align with the issue. And of course, educate others. Because at the end of the day, an educated voter is the best kind of voter, right? Because now you're being intentional about your voice as opposed to just going in and trying to figure it out in the ballot box. You know, now we have the opportunity to vote from home by vote by mail, but you still have to do that research rather than again, relying on other people who may not have your best interests at heart or may have their own personal interest in wanting you to vote one way versus another. So it's just to have that information to, to make the right decisions. And of course, consistently calling out leadership. If it's the Democratic Party not doing right, I'm gonna say something. If it's the governor not doing right, like for instance, the anti-protest bill or him raiding the, uh, the woman that was part of the the doing the data around the COVID numbers in Florida, there was a huge raid at her house where her laptop and everything was taken because she was a whistleblower and calling out the the foolishness and the 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 complete ineptness in the way that the governor has been have handling this pandemic in the state. You know, I'm going to call him out on that because that's dead wrong. That's that's abuse of power, right? So whoever it is that's not doing right by our communities. In my opinion, I'm going to have a say in it and I'm going to raise my voice and encourage others to join me and do the same. I appreciate that because that's kind of the reason why I started my own podcast because I feel like my own generation has a, a huge hole in the research department where they're, they're just not willing to sit and actually do the work, which I understand it's an extra step, but it's absolutely necessary. So I very gladly tune in every once in a while to your Mondays and I hope you'll still keep calling people out because that's something that I hope never stops. So what about today's climate gives you hope and or pause for what's to come? I see hope in young people, right? I, I see hope when I think of this summer and how the young people just came together to be in the street and protest and really raise their voice. That that does a lot for my heart and get, you know renews my faith in humanity, right? Um, when you think about the first civil rights movement, because make no mistake, we are in the second civil rights movement. But when you think of the first civil rights movement in the 60s, you know, John Lewis was in his 20s. You know, Dr. King was in his late 20s, early 30s, you know? So it's the young people that lead these movements and really, you know, fight for the change. So that really, you know, to see the young people and the way they they coalesced around my campaign for state attorney was huge as well. You know, that's those were the sorts of messages and stuff that really kept me going. Um, what gives me pause is sort of the recovery from what we went through in the last four years, right? Um, a lot has been laid bare. Um, the genie will not be able to be put back in a bottle, right? Because now we kind of know where our neighbors and people we thought were friends and you know family members stand. And so how do we move past that? And I don't have the answer to that. Um, I think that a lot of it has to do with 
being real and intentional with regards to education and understanding the history of this country and how race played into it. I think there's a lot of, there was slavery and then there was the civil rights movement and now everything's fine. We had a black president, right? And there's a whole ignoring of redlining of the Tuskegee experiment of, you know, all these different things. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think that because of the fact that people haven't learned about all these key points in history, like how, you know, like talking about the Tuskegee experiment and how, you know, Black lives were not valued in a medical context and how that continues today to the point that you hear Serena Williams and Meghan Markle even, you know, uh, the, the Duchess of Sussex, uh, <laughs> you know, talking about their experiences in childbirth and how, you know, they were afraid for their lives and Serena literally did almost lose her life as a result of medical negligence, some of it through implicit bias. So all of these things really factor into the Black experience, the Black and black Brown experience in America. And if people aren't even open to having these discussions and learning about it, I don't see how we're going to move forward as a country. Like we need to have sort of like what that period of reconstruction was supposed to be. You know, when you look at like South Africa and, and Germany, af Germany after World War II, South Africa at the end of apartheid, there was this time of national healing of reconciliation where, you know, the country had to come to grips with its past and decide what their future is gonna be. We have not done that in the United States and we need to. And now is probably the best time to do it, but, Again, there's gotta be that will and there's gotta be the leaders trying to bring everyone together to have these discussions. Yeah, absolutely. Especially because everybody's experience is so different. Even mm -hmm. asking you to speak for the black community, your experience is gonna be completely different than your black neighbor or my black neighbor. It's completely different. And it's, I feel like it's not fair to just speak in general. And if they don't sit down and have those conversations, it's just never gonna happen. And so kind of leaning into that, what exactly does Black Lives Matter mean to you and your community? So Black Lives Matter means to me that just that, that you, we have the right to be able to live in peace, just like everyone else, that we need to be recognized as, as full humans and full citizens, just like everyone else. You know, we work, we pay taxes. And, you know, the same outcry when, you know, a, a white person is harmed or, or, or shot or anything like that, that same outcry needs to be there for African-Americans. You can't just ignore and say, oh, well, what did you do to deserve? It or you people always, you know, that sort of thing. So for me, Black Lives Matter is about addressing the systemic racism that has caused Black lives not to matter for so many decades and the holdover of all of this, how it impacts policing and our system today. It's all part of it. So Black Lives Matter to me is not even just about policing. It is about the medical field, like I touched on earlier. It is about education and how, you know, everyone is not getting the same education in this country, which does not give you the opportunity to be able to compete for jobs and for advancement, right? Or when you get into these corporations and there's nobody on the board that looks like you, yet this is the board that sets policy, that sets salaries, that you know dictates who should be in position and who shouldn't, 
you know, it, it, it touches each of those aspects. So I think it's a lot broader than people realize, um, but it certainly is not the, it's not like a group and it's not a terrorist organization like some police officers like to say, because at the end of the day, like the Proud Boys is a terrorist organization, right? Because they legit kill people. Nobody affiliated with Black Lives Matter in a real way has gone out and hurt anybody or harmed anyone, right? Uh, you have people who will do things and say Black Lives Matter, but the movement is not sanctioning violence on police officers or violence on anyone. It's about equality and it's about making sure that African-Americans, Black people, people of color are being treated equally in this country and that this country is held to its promise of liberty and justice for all. And so how do you advocate for Black lives, aside from your professional work, and how do you think we should advocate for Black lives? So the way I advocate is, again, through education and empowerment, right? So when we talk about issues like, for instance, defund the police, right? We, we talk about that. There's a discussion of, is it just a slogan? What does it really mean? And all of that. And I like to talk about it in more concrete terms as to what exactly needs to happen, right? So it's not like we're going to abolish police, because that's a very separate discussion. And there's some people who believe in the abolishment of police. I am not one of them right because god forbid there's a shooting i need somebody to come up here and handle it it's not going to be me unless i absolutely have to right. listen I have firearms i can handle on my own but there is a role for law enforcement in this community period end of story for right. me right and that's not to put anyone down who feels differently this is my opinion right. but when we look at and, and this is something that i saw as a prosecutor for for just for decades was that whenever there's budget cuts, it's always money taken away from grassroots programs, from social services, from programs that address addiction and mental health. And then we wonder why the crime rate goes up. And then we end up putting more money towards policing as opposed to putting money towards the programs that actually address the root drivers of crime. Because remember, by the time the police get there, it's a done deal. There's already a victim or a survivor. There's already somebody probably going to jail. It's a wrap, right? right? But if we can do the preventative work, the prevention is better than the cure. Police officers are the cure. And not necessarily because, again, there's all these collateral consequences that come with it. If we can address the underlying issues, we have safer communities and we have less victims and it ends up being a tax payer savings, right? Because you don't have to pay out for all of, you know, for all of these other aspects. So for me, advocating for Black lives means educating people about the issues that are at play and for them to be able to make wise decisions at the ballot box and not operate out of fear or out of, you know, oh yeah, I was told that, that the Black Lives Matter people want to abolish police and let us get murdered in the streets that's not even remotely accurate, right? So it's about making sure there's accurate information out there for people to make their own decisions. Of course. How would you say that it's best to stay active for us as civilians and not in politics in the activism movements and supporting Black lives? For, uh, I think, first of all, it's always about education. It's constantly educating yourself because issues change, new studies come out, um, 
new issues come up, right? Uh, and so we have to constantly be educated on what's going on. And it doesn't mean that you need to get a master's degree every day, right? It's not that serious. Right. But it's about, you know, subscribing to the Herald or to the Washington Post or to Refinery29 or Huffington Post or whatever, but just getting the headlines every day and reading and just making it a habit of reading what's going on in this country and in this state so that you know what's happening. And don't just get your news from one source, right? And like, make sure to, for me, it's trust, but verify. You know, if you're reading some like weird kind of blog up in the cut, you're going to need to verify your information, right? You know, again, Washington Post, uh, Fox News, whatever, like, listen, they, they give their opinions, you read it, you think about it, but then you also do some more research, especially if it's an issue that speaks very closely to you, or it's something that you're like, I've never heard any of this before. So just constantly learn and then share that information with others, share that information with others in your circle, your family, your friends, so that they too are getting the benefit. Because if you elevate everybody's consciousness, again, we get better decisions when people go to the ballot box. And then also make sure that you know who your representatives are, right? Who is, you know, who is your, your US Senator? Who is your, um, your Congressperson, right? Who is your state representative, your state Senator, your your commissioner, right? And reach out to them around issues. It's so easy now because if you belong to, let's say, New Florida Majority, Planned Parenthood, any of any uh, indivisible, any of these, you know, activist organizations around specific issues, they will send you calls to action and say, we need everybody to reach out to their representative around this issue. And many times they'll have a button in the email that you can click that instantly lets you either send a text message or an email to your representative around a particular issue. It's so easy to engage. You don't have to necessarily even pick up the phone and talk to anybody. You can just send a text or write an email and boom. And the aides at all of these, uh, you know, all these, all of these uh, politicians' offices, they take notes on what people are calling or reaching out about. And if they're seeing, wow, a lot of people are really opposed to this particular bill, then they're going to pass that on to their legislator and be like, listen, you better keep an eye on this because the, the voters don't like this. And at the end of the day, elected officials work for us, not the other way around. And so if they're not being responsive, then we need to give them their walking papers, period, end of story. So that's how we exercise our power as voters and as, as the people. It's funny that you mentioned that because I don't know if you heard my um, millennial Republican episode, but she also mentioned the exact same thing where it's like our representatives work for us. And the second that they pass a bill that nobody's happy about and they get a bunch of calls, they freak out and they have to change it. And I guess like the pattern from both of your responses is stay on top of those minor bills that are happening in your community and apply pressure, <laughs> apply pressure to your representatives. What are some of the things that we can kind of take a look at in regards to getting more details about, for example, how policing standards are going right now that we might not know just from a basic Google search like police standards, Florida? Right. So definitely uh, look at the Florida Department of Law Enforcement because they are the ones, if I'm not mistaken, that uh, hold the certification for all the police officers in Florida. So they, you know, they're the ones who would maintain the standards 
to be able to say, okay, this is what every officer has to do. This is how much training they need to have, not only at the academy level, but continuing education th throughout their career, you know, all of that. So that's one aspect. Um, also, uh, you know, take a look at what or other organizations have done because there's no reason to reinvent the wheel, right? If you look at, you know, the eight can't wait reforms, right? That, that lists out eight things that police departments can adopt that will help reduce violent interactions. Um, look at what other, you know, for instance, the 21st century um, task force on policing that was um, put together by President Obama. There were a lot of really great findings in there that talked about ways that police departments could center community policing and working with the community to make sure that their voices are heard. And if you can do a little bit more research around that, they'll show you some of the top jurisdictions that have really implemented these reforms and have seen some progress. So Camden, New Jersey is one that really rises to the top because they basically disbanded their police department and reformed it and reinstituted it with a new mandate and new training protocols and, and, and new standards. So it ended up really shifting. Number one, there was a reduction in homicides. Now, of course, it wasn't all, you know, nothing's flawless, right? I mean, the, there ended up being an increase in uh, the use of electronic surveillance, which is disturbing from a privacy perspective. Uh, so some activists are very concerned about that, but there are definite lessons that can be taken from that. So see what other jurisdictions have done to, to reduce violence uh, between police and, and the residents that they serve and take some of those things to help strengthen your bill. And then also try to find law enforcement validators. You know, you have folks like the MCPBA, which is the one of the oldest black uh, police, uh, you know, orders or, or unions, so to speak. It's not like a the official union, but basically a group that gives you know good information. There's the Ethical Society of Policing that's based out of St. Louis. That again, ma majority African American and minority officers speaking out around these issues. You know, you can find validators who will stand with you and say, "Listen, these reforms are they make good sense, and it's not anti-police. It's about bridging the gap and rebuilding trust with communities." Yeah. Yeah, and that's really the goal because I do support my law enforcement, just like you said, where there is a need for it at the end of the day. But the concern is the voice of the community not being heard, especially black and brown community. So that's, thank you for those tips. <laughs> and so what would you like to say to anyone who either doesn't support that type of movement, either for police reform or some sort of Black Lives Matter um, platform? So first of all, I would encourage you to do your research, right? And not just in one vein of outlets, right? So if you're normally getting your news from Fox News, that's cool, but switch it up and check out CNN, right? If, if you're, you wanna know more about the movement, engage with people who, you know, go online and look for movement for black lives, right? And, and reach out to somebody locally and just ask them questions, right? Because again, I think that interpersonal interaction is what opens eyes so much more than again, people sitting in their corners and being like those people over there, X, Y, Z, A, B, C, right? And, you know, again, it's not, you know, I've heard this narrative, so I'll just address it. You know, there's this thought process among some is that Black Lives Matter means Black people are better than everyone else. 
and therefore they want to see the death or the harm come to, to other groups. And nothing could be further from the truth, right? It's basically the way I like to anal analogize it. You know, you have, uh, you know, Breast Cancer Awareness Month. That's not saying that other cancers don't matter. We're talking about breast cancer right now. Right. So the same way we're, we're not saying that other people's lives don't matter, but we're saying black folks have been left out of the conversation for too long and it's unfair. And that has created a lopsided system with black and brown people getting the, the, the short end of the stick. And that's not OK. And if this is a country that's really about equality and, you know, innocent until proven guilty, then we need to have equality for everyone, you know? So that's, you know, all I can say is interact, educate yourself, you know, and if folks have questions for me, listen, I'm happy to have a dialogue if you want, you truly want a dialogue. If you just want to come on my page and fight, I ain't got time for that, right? Sorry. But if you legit have questions like, I don't know, I don't have any black friends, you know, uh, can, can you explain to me why this, this, and this? Listen, do some research. And, and come hit me up and we can talk, right? So to me, it's about dialogue and education, always. I agree. I've learned more from having conversations with people that I didn't agree with than you know, having my own mentality and closing off and just staying in my own research. That, that's a definitive. So Ms. Melba, do you have any final thoughts for me? Just, you know, keep, keep pushing on, keep your head up, you know? Um, We've gone through crazy stuff in history before. So this is all kind of, you know, cyclical. So we'll get through this and just, you know, take every challenge as you can, but just keep educating yourself and try to do the right things for the right reasons. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your schedule to be here with me. I really do appreciate it. You're awesome. Don't stop. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And just uh, keep in touch and let me know what's going on. So if I can help in any way, I'd be happy Absolutely. to. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I will. Sounds like a plan. Thank you so much.